Good morning. How awesome it is to be in the house of the Lord this morning, amen? And not only that, to be doing so this time of the year, somewhere between Christmas and New Year's, it's the 29th, I think, isn't it? Heard someone lamenting the other day that, uh, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, I feel like I hear it every year, that there's so much excitement and so much buildup and so much uh, fun and joy leading up to Christmas, the music, the lights, and the decorations, and the family get-togethers, and all of the food, and all of these things that we do for these couple of weeks, some of you a couple of months, leading up to the 25th, and then all of a sudden it's over. And there's almost kind of like a depression that happens because you're riding really high and then all of a sudden, where'd it go, right? I can't help but feel like that's just kind of the wrong way to look at things. Because first of all, the Christmas season, if you will, extends from December 25th, and we know this, through what we call the Epiphany on January 6th. Right? And the epiphany, of course, commemorating the manifestation of Christ's divinity, particularly to the Gentiles. That would include most, if not all of us here today. In reality, the coming and going of Christmas morning being a letdown, honestly, is a little bit of a tell, isn't it? Because if our eyes and our minds and our spirits were truly tuned to the meaning of Christmas, we would understand that the anticipation of Jesus' birth doesn't even hold a candle to what he brought with him after that. When the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, and, and then the crowds of angels called out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They weren't necessarily rejoicing about a baby in a manger, or swaddling clothes, or, or a new star in the sky, or shepherds, or wise men, or anything else. They were rejoicing because they knew who this baby was. wake yet. They knew that the entire course of history was about to take a hard right and things were about to fundamentally change because the son of God, God himself was about to step into the picture and bring with him a picture to uh, a plan to reconcile us, us, me, sin-filled, God-hating creature of dust back to the father. And in that there is endless joy that doesn't end on December 25th. So yes, December 25th was four days ago, but this day you opened your eyes and you swung your feet over the side of the bed. Some of you didn't swing, you kind of inched over to the edge and I don't do much swinging myself. This day you were given breath in your lungs, amen? And if you are a child of God, you can be glad that it is December 29th and Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is not in a manger anymore. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, having already accomplished all of the work that's necessary that needed to be done to pay off your sin debt and could only be paid by death. He did it already. He's sitting in heaven on the 29th reconciling you with the Father, not as a servant, but as a child of his. And he is there ready and waiting to hear from the Father those words, okay, it's time. 
And that's when he will leave heaven again and he will come back to bring us, to gather him to himself. On December 29th, we can echo the words of Simeon when Jesus was brought into the temple as a boy. He said, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Rejoice that he was born, absolutely have at it, but rejoice that he is alive, that your Savior is alive today on the 29th and going into 2020, you're not going by yourself. Well, before we get into the message today, <laughs> the second one, I guess, is I want to talk to you about a woman in the Bible. She's the most relevant, important woman in the Bible. Does anybody know who she is? She, so I've heard Mary. I've heard the one that touched Jesus's robe. Great answers, not the one I'm thinking of. It's Eve. Of course. You know how we know that Eve is the most important woman in the Bible? We named two days after her, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. <laughs> See, that wasn't fair because you thought I was... We're not really ready to get into the message until we get the collective groan. So now we are officially ready. With... Uh, 2020 on the horizon, the turn of a new year coming to us in only three days. We hear around this time a repeated refrain. Uh, it is a catchphrase almost, words that don't really mean a whole lot after a while. Things that we say to one another, and you may have even said to one another today, if you're not saying Merry Christmas, you are saying Happy New Year. We're speaking over the one to whom we are addressing a blessing of sorts by saying essentially this year that's coming up, I hope you have a happy one. It'd be interesting to have a conversation if the room were smaller and we had a few less people to talk about and come up with some determination of what exactly we mean by that when we say happy new year. Some of the things that would likely surface are, well, we mean that we hope the person has good health or maybe a financial windfall, or a relationship success. Or some would say, it's much more general than that, so stop overanalyzing things. To which I would say, you don't know me at all, do you? You gotta learn to love me. But some might say, yeah, just happiness. I just wish you happiness. That's what I mean when I say Happy New Year. But in some ways, the word happy is a problem for us in regular semantics, isn't it? Because it isn't easily defined, and in, in many ways, according to a strictly humanistic definition, what makes you happy may not make me happy, and vice versa. So happy is a problem. But today I want us to look at a chapter in the Bible that speaks to this conversation in very clear and direct ways. That chapter is found in the Psalms. It's at the very beginning of Psalms, Psalm 1. So we're going to start out by reading it, and since this is the Holy Word of God, breathed out by him for us in tangible honor and visible respect for it. I will ask that if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. This is the word of God from the Psalms, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us Psalm 1. You have given us Psalm 1 not only to read, but to grow through, to pray through, to learn through, to become more like Jesus, to become closer to you. And so, God, I ask that that's exactly what you would do today. Your people did not come into this place to hear me stand before a wooden podium and preach. Your people came together today to hear from your word, God, and to hear words from your mouth. And so I ask that you would speak to us and you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds that we would get exactly what you have for us today, that you would draw us closer to yourself, and that, God, we would not be able to leave here the same way that we came in. God, we trust you, we lean on you, we believe that you can do exactly what you've promised, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so Psalm 1. Scholars are not immediately sure by whom and on what occasion this first of the Psalms was written. In a lot of the Psalms, we get a little tag at the top, right, that tells us who wrote it, either David or, or Solomon or someone else. We don't have that here. There's some speculation because of its similarity to the Proverbs that Solomon, David's son, wrote it. But for today, it really doesn't matter because what it speaks to us is very clear. Because see, not only does it provide this beautiful framework by which we approach the rest of the Psalms, but by contrasting that of the righteous and that of the wicked, it spells out in only six verses the way that is to be followed. All people are looking for a way, trying to find the way. Well, who can truly tell us that? Who really knows the way? Who has a right to tell us that? Well, we can make the end our beginning here and reread the very last verse of Psalm 1. It says the Lord, capitalize all of those letters, that means Yahweh, when we see it written like that, knows the way of the righteous. And that is, knows the way as in the path toward righteousness, the path of righteousness, and the final destination of those who are righteous and those who are not. So who has a right to tell us the way? Yahweh does. And we therefore will look in the word to hear his voice to find that way. So with the truth in mind that the way has been given, up, given to us by Yahweh himself, a truth that we as believers already hold close, as we've already stated that scripture is God-breathed, it's useful to us for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness and preparation for every good work, we jump back to the top of Psalm 1 and we read, blessed is the man. Four words and a quick note about two of them. First of all, we read the man here, but we can just as easily translate this the one. So the man, the woman, the child, blessed is the person. All right. But what about the word blessed? In the Hebrew, there are two words that are translated blessed. One of them is barach. 
And barak simply means to be blessed. That's not very helpful, is it? That's not the word that's even used here in this passage. The Hebrew word that we're seeing here is actually the word esher, E-S-H-E-R in English. And a great English translation of the word is a word that we've already heard multiple times a few minutes ago, and that is happy. It means happy. But it's more than that. See, it means supremely happy. It means fulfilled happiness. And even more than that, the Hebrew word here is actually plural, which speaks to us of a multiplicity of blessings or an intensification of happiness. By the way, in Matthew 5, where Jesus is speaking what we refer to as the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit and so on, the Greek version of the same word is used. So supremely happy, James uses it too in chapter 1 of his letter. So all great for word study if you like that, but we still have a little bit of a problem because we still don't have a clear definition of happy, do we? So for that, it helps us to dig deeper into the root of the Hebrew word esher. And at the root, we find the word ashar, which means straight or level. In the Hebrew way of thinking, life is looked at as traveling down a path. We are all traveling down a path, and you see reference to that all through the Bible if you look for it. But there are, and this would have been in the writer of this psalm's mind as he wrote it, simply two types of paths that a person might take, the straight one and the crooked one. The straight path being the shortest and the easiest path, and the crooked one being the longer one filled with peril and fatigue and and more opportunities to get lost. So what we find is those described as supremely happy are those who remain on the straight path. So we're getting there. So we may read this first four words of Psalm 1 this way. Supremely happy and fulfilled along the straight path is the person. And that sounds good. I would like to be that person. Going into 2020, I would love to learn how to be that person. So the psalmist continues with the word who and begins to flesh out a description of that person. But first, in verse 1, we read about that which the happy person, the blessed person, does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, I've heard some say, and perhaps you have too, and there are commentators that will say this, that what's being communicated here is a progression of sin. In other words, we can start with walking in bad counsel and then we'll eventually stop and stand in sin, no longer moving away from it or beginning to get comfortable in it, taking our place in it. And then, of course, we eventually lead to sitting down and and essentially making the decision to take up residency there. He who acts by bad counsel turns to evil deeds and in the end abandons himself to evil and ends his life in total apostasy from God. And that isn't a wrong way to look at it. If we go back to the Hebrew way of thinking of life as a path that we are all traveling, a person may go from moving along the path to stopping and standing in the path to sitting down on the path. Some will also say that walk, stand, and sit represent thinking, behaving, and belonging. But sometimes I think we just get a little too cute. Sometimes I think we try to impose some things on Scripture that may or may not be there. 
When we read the Bible, it's important to understand not only the context of the author and the context of the people who would have been reading and hearing this at the time, but also the type of writing that it is. And Psalms are what? Songs. It's poetry. And a large majority of the Psalms are written in a form of Hebrew poetry called chiasmus. And in this form of poetry, one idea is often expressed in two or more different ways by paralleling different words and phrases or repeating the same statement multiple times in different ways to deepen or elaborate the effect of the message. So we can read, walk, stand, and sit as parallel action. Also paralleled here are the words wicked, sinners, and scoffers. You can do deeper study, and I hope you do, of the differences in the definitions of these words because there are some differences. But once again, if we're to read this as a Hebrew person, we would recognize that walking, standing, and sitting is to describe one complete action. And wicked sinners and scoffers as one complete type of person. And that type of person, boiled down, is one who has, in the Hebrew way of thinking, down a path, one who has departed from the path or who has missed the target. Now, we've just done a decent amount of word study and intellectual stuff, and while I acknowledge that I'm a nerd and enjoy it, there are a lot of you that do not, and I understand that. Uh, But all of this is extremely important. Why is it important? Well, there are entirely too many, and there are those who are standing behind pulpits today, right now as I speak, in front of groups of people larger than this one, who skim the pages of the Bible and come to unfounded and dangerous conclusions because they have literally no idea what the words even mean or how to handle the word of truth correctly, as Paul said in his letter to Timothy. I refuse to do that. What truly is this that the person who seeks to be blessed or to be happy should be avoiding? Walking in the council, standing in the way, sitting in the seat, what is that? We're not going to go through the definitions of all the words, but here's a practical way to look at this. We, you and I, as people who would walk a straight path of righteousness as those who would be blessed and find true and complete happiness in our God, are not to take advice from, are not to follow the counsel of, are not to be encouraged by or guided by or find our identity in the world around us. That makes us weird. Dear brother or sister in Christ, if you are basing your life decisions and looking for worth and wealth and career success because that is what society has told you you have to do in order to have worth, in order to matter, you are walking in the counsel of the wicked. if you have developed your system of ethics and morality around the wisdom of this age, calling upon commonalities with your generation, that's just the way we are, or leaning on the comfort of compromise in order to be accepted or even lauded by your peers, you are standing in the way of sinners. If you are keeping company with, you are condoning, 
You are enjoying, even secretly, the perversion of the ungodly in what you watch, what you listen to, what you participate in. You are sitting in the seat of scoffers. Today is the day to repent. This isn't a joke. This isn't a flippant thing. Repent and turn your heart back to Jesus. Was the whole of 2019 not enough to flirt with evil and turn your back on the Lord to explore paths and veer off the straight and narrow to go do what you want and satisfy your curiosity and satisfy your desires that are all temporary? It's a new day. A new year approaches. Blessed is the one who does not do these things. Lay them aside and seek the Lord today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but the one who is blessed is not defined merely by what he or she does not do, but by what he or she does. You see, if you remove things and you set them aside, what are you left with? Emptiness, right? If you empty yourself of these things and you do not put something back in, it's empty, Guess what happens when there's emptiness? You will look for a way to fill it. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord here is the word Torah. It's not talking about just the first five books of the Bible or even just about the Old Testament, although at the time of this writing, nothing else really existed. But Torah is simply defined as the teachings or the way of Yahweh. So before anyone jumps up and says, but we are free from the law, keep your seat and be advised by the true meaning of what the psalmist is talking about here. Yes, we are free indeed from the bondage of the law as a way to relationship with the Lord. Hallelujah. But we are no more free from his teachings than our lungs are from the air that we breathe. Lungs do not reluctantly or hesitatingly fill up with air. They crave it. They desperately seek it when it's in short supply and they cease to have purpose without it. Likewise, we are to delight in the law of the Lord. In English, this word delight is a candy-coated one, isn't it? Delight. I almost can't say it without doing that, but it's my delight candy. We use delightful to describe things, even call some foods by that name. A very quick Google search presents cherry delight and banana delight, chicken delight, which I thought was a weird one to throw in there with the fruit. International delights, coffee creamers, right? Turkish delight. That's delicious, delightful even. But in Hebrew, the word carries with it a literal meaning that's a little bit different. The literal meaning of the word that's being used here is to bend. How does that make sense? It's to bend as in to bend one's will toward or to change one's direction in order to acquire what is desired. I have a puppy and this puppy is pretty intelligent, it's pretty well-behaved, 
but only when there's not something else that he wants more than what I'm telling him. And there are times when I can see it. I'm speaking to him. He's looking at me, but his body's going this way as he's looking at me. It's like he can't. Like he just, I, I, no, come here. I, and, and it's like he just, he can't. It's like his whole being is bent toward that that he desires. It's an unquenchable passion or a panting for something or someone. And in this case, the teachings of Yahweh. Christianity, our walk with the Lord, should not amount to a work of the will alone. A drudgery or a striving to accomplish something against every fiber of our being. This is religion in the most cold steel definition of the word. Doing and doing and doing and pushing and striving, putting our heads down and grinding to complete some sort of obligatory, obligatory march toward holiness so that in the end we are accepted by our heavenly taskmaster. That is not what the Lord wants from us. Listen to what David says in Psalm 119, verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. Verse 40, I long for your precepts. Verse 47 and 48, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. It's almost uncomfortable, isn't it? And then Solomon in the book of Proverbs, speaking from the perspective of Scripture, from the perspective of the words of the Lord, says, My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. See, if a person delights in something you don't have to beg that person to do it or like it, do you? We can measure our delight for the word of God by the strength of our hunger for it. Uh, how many of us can read and hear these things that David and Solomon say, and whether we admit it or not, we don't crave. We don't desire, we don't delight in the teachings of the Lord. We struggle to even have enough passion for it to complete a scheduled reading time a few days a week in the mornings. And when we come to hear a man called by God to open up and preach the scripture, we spend our time internally grumbling about the temperature or about how long he's going or, or we distract ourselves with doodling or talking to our friends or daydreaming. How can we get to a place where the word of the Lord is like honey on our lips? I want to propose to you three reasons why I believe we don't have this kind of delight in the law of the Lord. And I want you to also understand that while there's not a physical one standing here, there is always a mirror before myself when I preach. Charles Spurgeon said, man must have some delight, some supreme pleasure. His heart was never meant to be a vacuum. 
if not filled with the best things, it will be filled with the unworthy and disappointing ones. I believe that the biggest reason that we don't delight in the Lord and in the law of the Lord is that we have filled ourselves to the brim with delight for other things. Think about it. If we're going to gorge ourselves with loaves of white bread, what room is left for a New York strip? Not only is there no room for it, there's no desire for it. It's not something that we even want to do. Such is the one who finds delight in, who bends his will toward, who chases after the temporary pleasures and the fleeting satisfactions of this world. And some of you are right here in this room today, stuffing yourselves full of loaves of white bread, all of the things that make you feel good in the moment and deaden your senses to what your soul truly needs and desperately hungers for. Keep at it if you want to. Keep going. You can have them. God will allow you to have them. Run after them. Dive in. Slather them all over yourself. Build your life around those but be assured of this. You will never be fulfilled. You will never find true peace or comfort or joy or happiness. You will never truly be blessed. And you will forever be confused about how a person can even delight in the law of the Lord. The second reason why we do not delight in the law of the Lord is found right there in the same verse. The psalmist doesn't stop with his delight is in the law of the Lord. He finished the sentence with, and on his law he meditates day and night. Recognize with me the ridiculousness of this. I love my wife. That's not the ridiculous part. I'm still going. Hold on. Hold on. I want to delight in my wife. I want to get to know her better. I want to find out what makes her tick, to really learn her thoughts and hear her heart. Some of you remember Dr. Rodney Navy used to say that it's a man's responsibility to get a Ph.D. in his wife. So that's what I want. And to do this, I resolve that in this new year, I'm going to commit to spend a couple of minutes with her here and there. I mean, I'm busy. I got a lot of things to do, a lot of things I really like doing and that make me happy, and at least temporarily, at least for the moment. So I can't give her any substantial amount of time, you understand. But I'll give her a couple of minutes now and then. And that's how I'm going to delight in her in 2020. That's just dumb, right? We can agree that that's ridiculous. Why don't we see the idiocy of such thinking when it comes to our relationship with God and his word? This says that the happy person meditates on the law of the Lord. Some people have a problem with the word meditate. Take it up with God. No, it doesn't mean that word was stolen. It doesn't mean the emptying of the mind and becoming one with the universe and whatever else. It means filling the mind with the word. 
It means pondering it and thinking over it and reflecting on it and contemplating every word and phrase and then seeking to apply it and to pray through it, bathing in it until it comes alive. And this day and night here isn't referring to setting your alarm for one time slot in the morning and one in the evening, although do that too if that's what you want to do. But this is talking about 24-7. This is talking about making it a part of you. There's a country song from about 25 years ago that says, only on days that end in Y. Same concept. Over here, they don't remember it. Over here, they're like, yeah, that was terrible music, so I never listened to it. Saturating ourselves in the word. It brings delight in the word. And some are saying, well, I don't have time for that. You're a pastor, so you get paid to just sit in your ivory tower and study the word. It's not like you have anything else to do, right? But me, I've got a job, I've got kids, I've got hobbies. I I don't have time to give myself to the reading and the study of Scripture. My friend, you don't have time not to. James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And the prophet Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. You don't have time not to because that's what stands forever. We say, I have no joy. I have no peace. I have no strength. And we wonder at the fact that we feel far from God and like we never really have the relationship that other people seem to have with God. Feel like we just have no passion or desire for the Lord, for the things of God and his word. All the while, in the words of Spurgeon, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Happy is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and constantly, persistently meditates on it. I said that I think there are three reasons we don't delight in the law of the Lord, and we've gone through two. The third one is just this simple. James again said in chapter 4 of his letter that you have not because you ask. And further down in the same chapter, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. You want a passion for, a delight in the word of the Lord? Ask him for it. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let me ask you something and answer me honestly. Do you think that if you go to the Lord and ask him for a supernatural desire to consume the bread of his word, if you go before him and say, God, I want a passion for your word. I want to wake up in the morning and just desire it and pant after it. I just want to be closer to you and I want to bathe myself in your word. God's going to say, no, here's a rock. 
Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the results, what are the results? What will such a man look like? Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither in all that he does he prospers. So we get an agricultural simile, not at all strange to the Hebrew mind. The tree is a familiar metaphor for the blessed life of the godly. We see similar illustrations in Jeremiah 17 and Proverbs 3 and some other places, these agricultural similes. And we get this picture of a strong and healthy and thriving tree that is connected to a constant source. A constant source. We can go back and touch once more what I said a few minutes ago. This is not a tree that gets watered here and there when time allows. This is a tree that is connected to the constant source of water. Water is an illustration used even more commonly in the Bible. Obviously a necessity for life and growth. The tree that has this constant source of water has leaves that do not wither. It's healthy. It's strong. But I want us to look for just a few minutes at something about this tree. This word that the psalmist uses for planted here, it's the Hebrew word shatah. And it's a bit more specific than just planted. It's perhaps better translated transplanted. To be removed from an undesirable location and placed in a desirable one. This isn't a wild tree that randomly popped up beside an irrigation system. This is a tree that was planted purposely and with intention beside flowing water, beside living water. We just simply don't have enough time to explore all of the truth and the implications there. But in the book of John, when Jesus meets the woman at the well must have been ordained that somebody said that back there earlier jesus meets the woman at the well he tells her to dip him out a drink and she asks how is it that you a jew ask for a drink from me a woman of samaria and do you remember what jesus said he said if you knew who was asking you for a drink you would have in turn asked me for living water And then he goes on to say, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This living water to which Jesus was referring to here was, of course, himself. It was a relationship with God through faith in him as the son of God. We know that when we come to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ, covered by the redeeming blood of his sacrifice, and if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We read that in 2 Corinthians 5. In other words, we are dug up out of the mire of who we were and replanted by a stream of living water that Jesus mentions. We also read in John 15, 4 and 5 that Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. So we parallel what we're reading in Psalm 1. The tree that is planted by streams of water yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. It's important for us to understand something foundationally, though. It is the Lord who does the digging up and replanting. The tree cannot uproot itself and move. It is the Lord who provides, who is the streams of water. It is the Lord who cultivates the fruit from the tree. The tree, no matter how hard it tries, cannot push fruit from its limbs, and it doesn't even try because that would be ridiculous. It simply responds according to its design to the life-giving water. There is no life that we can offer ourselves. If we are spiritually alive, it is because he saw fit to graciously give it to us. And once we are planted by the water and once we are connected to the vine, we belong to the vine. And there is nothing that we do or do not do to maintain that that is solely the work of the Most High God. So spiritual life in Christ, once given, is a promise that God is faithful to uphold. Not an ultimatum that if you act right, you'll be in God's good graces. So we need to understand that. This psalm is only illustrating what the blessed person, the one who is happy in the Lord, looks like. Strong roots pushing deep and drinking up living water and bearing fruit in God's timing. It says fruit in its season according to God's work. But it is important that this be said. Yields its fruit in season means that there is fruit. It's not the same as maybe fruit will appear. It is a guarantee that there will be fruit. Going back to the words of Jesus, this time recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6 and verse 43 and 45, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We do a whole lot of damage when we communicate intentionally or unintentionally to a person that as long as they've bowed their heads and spoken some sort of magical prayer at some point in their life, that they need not worry about the fact that there's been no fruit in their life since then. That's dangerous. 17th century Anglican Bible commentator John Trapp said, there are no barren trees in God's orchard. And yet they may have their fits of barrenness, as an apple tree sometimes hath, but they will reflourish with advantage. If a person has truly been purposely by God, dug up and replanted by God himself, beside streams of living water who is God, there will be fruit. Fruit is an indicator of God's saving work in our lives. If there has not been and there is not fruit, one would do well to seek him for true salvation while there is still time. The one who does not bear fruit is not planted by the waters and is instead like the wicked, as we read in verse 4 of Psalm 1. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. In the most literal sense, chaff, you know this, is 
corn or wheat refuse, the husk that isn't necessary, that is not particularly useful, has to be removed. And this was often done by tossing the grain in the air, and when the wind would blow, it would blow the chaff away, and all of the grain would come down to the earth to be gathered up. The chaff would sometimes be gathered up and burned like dry grass or hay. That is not only a desperate and scary analogy, just being blown away, not useful. But we see even in the psalmist's description of the wicked a brevity that stands in stark contrast to the longer, fuller portrayal of the righteous as a tree with leaves and fruit. And we see that this contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous is an eternal one as we round out the psalm in verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And again, by whose authority? Who says? Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous the way of the wicked will perish. There is a call that goes out this morning. There is a call that goes out to the righteous, that is the one who stands on the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a child of God. And there is a call to the wicked, that is the one who to this moment has walked a path separated from God, having not yet submitted to his sovereign lordship. The one who in his arrogance has turned away and has ignored his call. Right now for focus and to turn you to a time that is just between you and the Lord, I'd like for you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. All across the room, heads bowed and eyes closed. To those who have already trusted in Christ as Savior, God has no need for you to perform for him. No need. His work is certainly not dependent on yours. He is faithful to his promises. You are held in the palm of his hand, and Jesus said no one will be able to snatch you out of it. You are his. But some of you know that you've been toying with delight in other things. You know that you have walked in the counsel of the wicked, you have stood in the way of sinners, you have sat in the seat of scoffers, you are not delighting in the law of the Lord, you are not meditating on it, and today you need to respond to the call of the Lord to confess those things, and then not only confess, but repent. Bend again your eyes and your heart to him and truly find happiness and joy in him. He is awaiting such a response from you this morning. So right now, don't hesitate to go ahead and do that. Speak to him. Get that right as I address the others in the room. Those of you who have not trusted in Jesus as Savior. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me, all means all. And because the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you this morning already, you know this. The Bible also says that the wages or the payment that is due because of sin is death. That is eternal death as separation from the grace and mercy of God. You may have been lied to in the past. You may have lied to yourself in the past. Someone may have stood behind a pulpit and lied to you in the past. But today is the day that you are recognizing the truth of these words. You have been like chaff, like a tree planted in the desert. No living water. But today you have begun to hear the voice of your God calling you to come to him. 
Jesus came to the earth to live the life you could never live, my friend. He then was unjustly crucified, dying the death that you deserved, but it did not end there. Hallelujah. He rose again from the grave, defeating sin and death and giving those who would trust in him eternal life. In your spirit and in your heart today, respond by saying yes to his call to come to him. Father God, we come before you this morning. God, I believe that you are doing a great work among your people. I believe that you are drawing your people back to yourself. I believe in revival. I believe that revival will start in the hearts of the men and women in your church. You decide that they are going to go back and find delight in your law, that they are going to become people of prayer. I believe that revival can start right here at Lawndale Baptist Church. I believe that revival can take place in Greensboro and then can spill out into the rest of North Carolina and into this nation, that your people will stand up and march March forward and advance your kingdom with confidence and power because you have promised that no one will snatch us out of your hand. You have promised that the power and the strength that we have comes directly from the throne of the creator and sustainer God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Most High. And God, we lean on that. God, today, those who have not responded to your call to come to you by a relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, I know you are speaking to their hearts, and I ask, God, that you would move them to respond. That today, December 29th, 2019, would be the day that they were born, would be the day that they were adopted into your family. God, we thank you for all of the work that you've already done, the work that you are doing, the work you'll continue to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the band comes back up here and pastors come forward, what we're going to do today, there are those who have responded to the Lord's call today and need to make this public, particularly those of you who have trusted in Christ this morning, but also those who need to come forward and pray with a pastor or a deacon. Brandon is about to lead us in a song. And I want you to come forward as you feel led. 2020 is only a few days away. But today is the day that God has given you to respond to his call. If you want to come forward and talk about candidacy for membership, we would love to have you. You can come forward and talk to one of the pastors or deacons about that. If you have something else that you need to pray about or you need for us to pray with you about, we can do that as well. Or the altar is open and you are welcome to come up here and make known what your decision is today.